We all love to think that we're so much smarter than those who came before us. We want to believe that they were less intelligent because we've attained a, a greater understanding of the world than they did. Our technology is advanced, our education is advanced, medicine is advanced, science, etc. Every aspect of mankind continues to advance, but Christianity doesn't change. The rules are the same, right? See the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, specifically verses 17 and 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The methods are also still the same, right? Check out Matthew 10, 34 to 49. I'm sorry, 34 to 39. Uh, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the goal is the same, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So how does Christianity continue to be relevant in a world and culture that keeps moving? The answer may surprise you. Stick around and find out. Welcome to another glorious day in God's creation. I'm John Kowalski, and this is Rise Up, a podcast about life's challenges with the answers provided by the Word of God. Marissa Donnelly, in her article on ThoughtCatalog.com titled, Nine Things That Are Holding You Back From a Deeper Relationship with God, listed some common reasons that people cite for denying God, religion, the Bible, or all of the above. First, your need for control. Second, your fear of the unknown. Third, your love of all things material. Four, your focus on the impermanent. Fifth, your need to look back instead of forward. Sixth, your negative self-image or self-deprecating thoughts. Seven, your inability to trust what you know in your heart is true. Eight, your desire for personal happiness rather than God-provided happiness. 
And nine, your nervousness over the possibility of change. I thought that this was a great list. It was very well thought out, very accurate. I've heard variations of all of these justifications or excuses at one point or another from people I love, people I barely know, strangers, uh, fellow churchgoers, uh, everyone, right? I thought I might take the list and order it by maybe importance or how often I hear the reason for withholding from God in my personal life experiences. So in my case, uh, I would put at the lowest priority, I'll go lowest to highest, our nervousness over the possibility of change. You hear things like, if God exists, why would he care about one person, especially me? Um, This is a good question, especially for someone in the throes of despair or depression whose life has handed them a raw deal. A child separated from their family, a woman experiencing abuse, people in bondage to addiction, people suffering from mental battles ranging from depression to anxiety to gender dysphoria to grief and so many other forms of suffering. There are so many ways that people suffer in this broken world, it's easy to find reasons to blame God when in reality, the answer to that suffering is to get closer to God. Christianity doesn't promise that you will never again suffer in this world. It promises you will never again suffer alone. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Our our difficulty with change is tremendous, so I'm not trying to minimize that by putting this one last on my list. I just think it's the easiest one for us to overcome. We overcome our fear of change every day, right? Things change in our relationships. Things change at work, at school, everywhere. And we we pull ourselves up and we do it, right? Because we have to. How is this any different, right? The answer to if God exists, why would he care about one person, especially me? is because he is not selfish. He did all of this to share in the glory that he already experienced. Number eight, our love of all things material. You may think, I'd have to give up so much to be a good Christian. But realistically, by not choosing Jesus, you've given up the only thing worth anything. And that's an eternal relationship with the Creator. Matthew 6, 20 and 21 teaches us, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
the truth is that giving brings far more joy than receiving anyway. So all of these things you cling to will end when your physical body, your time on this earth ends. And what will you have in the next world? Nothing. Number seven, your fear of the unknown. I find it interesting that millennials and Gen Z think of themselves as outgoing and tolerant and so much smarter than their predecessors, but yet simple fear of change or the unknown can prevent them from an eternal decision that will change their lives in this world and beyond. They use a questioning and skeptical nature to deflect any attempts to lead them to lasting life change. They repeat, I can't believe in Genesis. I can't believe in the Bible or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Who is that anyway? That doesn't make sense. Or spirituality in general, right? They're skeptical about every piece of it. But they reach out for prayer in their darkest moments. They accept prayer from believers in time of dire need or grief. They admit that the universe or Mother Nature wants or doesn't want something in their lives. Again, demonstrating their true internal deep down belief in a higher power. They just rebelliously accept the creation as God like a sun-worshipping ancient Egyptian while denying the God who created all of it. Isaiah 44, 9-17 says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god and casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them assemble. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars and chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. And he takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. We want to deny God largely because he is unknown, 
But ask yourself, what use would a God be to us if he was no more than a man himself? If we completely understood his every way, he wouldn't be much of a God at all. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Number six, you need to look back instead of forward, or your need to look back instead of forward. We live in a world paralyzed by the past. We must crucify the mistakes of our ancestors and levy the punishment on the descendants who had no part in their sins or crimes. We would rather continue to be victims of the past. We ignore the progress made by the progeny of the abusers, and we cast judgment instead on the innocent of today. We decide that the answer to oppression of the past is equal and opposite oppression today. We ignore the fact that we don't have to continue to be victims. Instead, we can choose not to continue the racism, the gender bias, the ageism, or any other alternate otherism that we create for ourselves and cherish so that we can feel better about ourselves than our neighbor. We should simply do three things. One, study history. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Number two, refuse to repeat the bad parts. Zechariah 1.4 says, Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. And then number three, hold each person accountable for their own actions. Revelation 20.12 says, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. It's easy to say, it's too late for me. I needed this. I needed to hear this when I was younger because it allows you to continue in your sin and justify it as if it is not in your control. Abraham lied, so did Jacob. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Gideon was a coward. Samson was a prideful fool. James and John were prideful. Peter was cowardly. Even the brother of Jesus himself denied him until after his return. But maybe the best example was the man in the Bible who you'd probably least expect to know God. There were two men crucified with Jesus. One mocked him and the other spoke up for him in Luke 23, 40 and 42. Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And, and he was saying, 
Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus didn't respond in his pain and suffering, condemning the thief for all of his sins and crimes that had led him to this justified death on a cross. Instead, he said in verse 43, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Your past can end today and you can start a new future, becoming a new creation. It will someday be too late, but today is not that day. Number five, your focus on the impermanent. Focus on the impermanent is a cultural norm now. The easier our lives get through technology, the more we distract ourselves with nonsense. We create whole fake lives on social media. We post about those lives in our families, but only the good parts. We convince ourselves, I'll be fine once I get this promotion or job or spouse or car, but the promotion is to a job that takes us away from our family more. The job doesn't pay what it was promised, and our boss is a terrible, abusive tyrant. The car and the house are mortgaged beyond our means. It's all fake, but it's our fake life, and we're sticking with it. Even when we start to get disillusioned with our false life, we hide behind justifications like, I had a bad experience at church or with a Christian, to keep ourselves separated from God. I'm sorry, but this is such a dumb excuse. No one ever said, my new car is a lemon, so I'm going back to bicycling for life. Or, I had a bad experience at the movie, so I'm going back to cave paintings. We separate ourselves from Jesus because some guy at church, uh, at the church social judged us. We claim that the church doesn't represent our race or our gender. We complain about the music and the message and the clothing of the people who attend. And we forget entirely whose church it is and why we're supposed to be there. The church belongs to Jesus, not you. You are there to worship God, not be worshipped by other people. Once and for all, get over yourself. Even the people who attend regularly fall into traps of the impermanent. This is not a secular problem. Our kids yell YOLO, you only live once, and, the, and try every dumb thing under the sun. But YOLO is just another lie. You only live once in the temporal. You will live again in the eternal. And it's an in, entirely your choice how that life will go. You can claim you go to church, you serve, and you worship, but does Jesus know you? Matthew 7, 21 and 22 states, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We know that this we know this scripture and we should rightly fear it. But do we understand the cause for such a judgment? In the previous verses, 15 to 20, 
it's it states beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles so every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire thus you will be recognized by your fruit the judgment for such an action is terrifying but how do we avoid such a failure in verses 24 to 27 we learn directly from jesus mouth Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. If you still need encouragement after all of this, just look at John 16.33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm going to take a quick break and then we'll continue. Okay, I'm back and we're at number four. And in my opinion, number four is our desire for personal happiness rather than God provided happiness. I hear a lot. God wants me to be happy. Yeah, how does that work exactly? God overlooks your sin because it makes you happy? Where's the justice in that? Where's the mercy in that? Does he overlook adultery, theft, murder, including abortion, child child abuse? Where do you draw the line between your happiness and the effect it has on others? Please, don't tell me my sin is victimless, it only affects me. That's a big lie that you'd have to be completely delusional to actually believe. Let's apply this ridiculous justification to a sin that's common, that it's commonly used to justify pornography, right? Your use of pornography only affects you, right? Well, it does affect you. It makes you a terrible person. It makes you weak. It makes you dependent. But it doesn't only affect you. What about the women and the girls who choose to work in that industry because the market exists and pays? How can they break the cycle of selling themselves for financial gain? How do they go from getting enormous amounts of negative attention from huge, huge groups of men or women to settling for the positive attention of one man or woman. It also affects their children, their families. 
It creates repetitive cycles of attention-seeking, financial dependency, self-worth issues, shame that get worse with every generation and more inescapable. The fact that so many give in to this sin and claim it's victimless is what makes it abundantly available and easily accessed by any child with a screen of any type. This is just one of the many sins we have chosen to enslave ourselves to and justify as harmless. The only person fooled by your ridiculous claims of victimless sin is you. The truth is, everyone in the world is a victim of sin. Number three, our need for control. We can claim that God doesn't exist or science denies God, but we can't explain anything without his touch. When faced with overwhelming evidence that there must be a creator, that our worldview is devoid of fact or truth, we immediately defer our arguments to an array of a good God wouldn't statements. We claim that the fact that suffering exists means that there can be no God, or at least not a good one. We pretend that we could accept life without free will while we rebelliously claim or cling to our delusions of freedom. The clear truth is that we're all enslaved to sin by nature until we finally admit that we can't do it alone and surrender to the Savior. Until then, we hide behind childish statements like, I don't need more rules in my life or I've got this. Control is an illusion that we are all better off without. Number two, our negative self-image or self-deprecating thoughts. Image is a hot button in our culture and society today. It's not a new issue, but we've found new ways to destroy our image by demanding that we can define it for ourselves. We claim to want to be accepting of others, all the while we are separating ourselves by redefining our self-image to be so unique and so different that no two are alike. We create a room of our own pride, or room for our own pride, and we deny that anyone else can understand us, let alone provide anything positive in our lives. God made us in his image, and instead of being grateful, we deny him and endeavor to recreate him by our misinterpreted image of ourselves. Then we argue amongst ourselves based on how we want to personally define God. We lose ourselves in pride in so many ways. The narcissist pridefully claims, I'm enough, but they're wrong. Those on the other end of the pride spectrum claim, I'm not forgivable. They're also wrong. The fence sitters put off the truth by claiming, I need to get myself together before asking for salvation. I've got two pieces of news for you. You can't get yourself together and you don't need 
to get yourself together. How do I know this is true? As always, the Bible. The world of God tells me so. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. On a recently broadcast, ultimately podcast, titled God's Law is a Mirror, which will be linked in the show notes as always, uh, the late R.C. Sproul was quoted saying, I can deceive myself into thinking I'm a righteous man. I can compare myself with other people and look at the laws of humanity and measure myself and give myself a high score. But once I look in the perfect mirror and compare myself with the law of God, I'm devastated because I see the darkness of my sin. We crow about deeds and actions that are really no more than what Jesus asked us to do and did himself. We're slow to forget our good deeds and quick to forget our failures. The truth is, we are forgiven for all of our failures by grace. Number one, and this is a big one. It's our inability to trust what we know in our heart is true. Both the Old and New Testaments declare the truth. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 tells us, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. And Romans 1.20 states, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We should know God simply by opening our eyes to the glory of his creation. William Lane Craig said recently on his Reasonable Faith podcast that everyone has a dial of skepticism which gets turned way up when it comes to Christianity and way down when it comes to our own worldviews. This is not a new issue for mankind. It's as old as the world itself. Adam and Eve were easily deceived by the serpent, simply asking, did God really say? Why? Because they weren't just willing to swap their own judgment for God's, but they desired it so desperately. So do we. The Israelites were no sooner rescued from slavery in Egypt than they were replacing God in their hearts and minds. In Exodus 32.1, we learn when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Make us a god. They said this to Aaron, just another man. We continue to seek such idols in our modern world. 
while denying the creator, we happily give ourselves over to celebrities and ideologies and political narratives and many other temporal comforts while denying the one true eternal truth. We refuse to accept the words of Ecclesiastes 3.19, for whatever happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Jordan Peterson was quoted on a different broadcast of Reasonable Faith. Both broadcasts will be linked in the show notes. This one was titled, Jordan Peterson's Message to the Church. I don't know much about Jordan Peterson. I, I know he's a motivational speaker. Uh... I don't know if he's a Christian. I don't know. But he, what he says here to the church is right on point. And I'm going to read the entire quote. Invite the young men back. Say to them, you are welcome here. If no one else wants what you have to offer, we do. We want to call you to the highest purpose of your life. We want your time and energy and effort and your will and your goodwill. We want to work with you to make things better, to produce life more abundant for you and your wife and your children and for your community and for your country and the world. We have our problems in the Christian church. We're a moribund and sometimes corrupt and sometimes deeply so. We are outdated as are all institutions with their roots in the dead but still often wise past. Join us. We'll help fix you up and you can help fix us up. And together we'll aim up. To those young men still skeptical about such things, what else do you have? You can abandon the churches in your cynicism and disbelief. You can say to yourself narcissistically and solipsistically, the church does not express what I believe properly. Who cares what you believe? Why is this about you? Do you even want it to be about you? What if it was about others? What if it was about your duty to the past? to the broader community that surrounds you in the present? What if it was incumbent upon you and vital to your health and willingness even to live to rescue your dead father from the belly of the beast where he has always resided and restore him to life? End quote. That leaves me with just one more thing to wrap up on this podcast. And that's to answer the question I asked in the intro. How does Christianity continue to be relevant in a world and culture that keeps changing? Simply put, Christianity is only relevant when and because it doesn't change with the whims of culture. Despite the false teachings of progressive Christians and prosperity gospel teachers and well-meaning social justice warriors and even Christian nationalists, Christianity is only relevant because it doesn't change. It is defined by the Word of God, 
the rules, the method, and the goal all remain the same. Repent of your sins, confess your need, take up your cross, and spread the news. Get off the fence, give up what is ev- whatever is holding you back, and accept your eternal invitation. Until next time, I love you, I'll be praying for you. Please, get off the fence, don't be held back, and rise up.